Hello, Great Women Artists listeners. It's Katie here. And just before we get to today's episode, I wanted to tell you I have written a book, which is out this September. The Story of Art Without Men aims to retell art history with pioneering non-male artists who spearhead movements and redefine the canon. It is available to pre-order now from Amazon, Waterstones and more. And I have linked to the book in the show notes. But in this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the past two years. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection hand-cast in London's Hatton Garden from recycled silver and gold. The brand was founded by Rosh Matani to guide her through a dark time. Each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. Alighieri has entered and reinvented the world of gemstones and I am so excited to tell you about drop two of their garnet series from their latest autumn winter 2022 collection. The second trio in the series takes the garnet to new heights of deep red from the mesmerizing cocktail ring to a pool of energy set in the molten gold amulet. This series celebrates the force of garnet with the dark red gemstones set in Alighieri's signature molten gold. For all of you in London or visiting this year, I encourage you to go and meet the wonderful Alighieri team in their showroom in Hatton Garden. Here you can enter their creative oasis, enjoy an aperitif and discover your next modern heirloom with a personal styling appointment. Sign up to their newsletter online to be the first to hear about their showroom events happening this summer and to be welcomed into their VIP shopping evenings. You can visit the full collection at www.alighieri.com and just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the esteemed writer and artist biographer Patricia Albers. The author of numerous publications, including Joan Mitchell, Lady Painter, A Life, the first biography of the abstract expressionist sensation Joan Mitchell, and currently completing a biography of the Hungarian-born photographer André Cortez. Patricia Albers has written catalogue essays and art reviews for publications, including the New York Times and more. She has received numerous awards, including a Robert B. Silvers Foundation Award, a U-Cross Writing Residency, and a Barbara Deming Memorial Fund grant among others. But the reason why we are very excitedly speaking with Patricia today is because she is also the author of Shadows, Fire, Snow, The Life of Tina Madotti, and the curator of the formerly travelling exhibition, Tina Madotti 
and the Mexican Renaissance, a show and book focusing on one of the greatest photographers of the early 20th century, a trailblazer who found herself at the centre of Hollywood in the 1920s, in the midst of communism with the muralists in the post-revolution era of Mexico, the latter of which she captured through raw images of people and landscapes, using her camera, her tool, to directly engage with political and social issues. Patricia Albers, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. I'm doing very well. And thank you for that beautiful introduction. I am very excited to be talking about Tina Modotti. Me too. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I mean, Tina Modotti is a photographer whose story is not only one of the most captivating and brilliant in history, but whose work is utterly enchanting, powerful, triumphant and soulful, whether it be her angular abstractions or wilted flowers that feel equally sensual as they do modern, pointing towards a new world. Always with a socially conscious focus, she captures her subjects with dignity and documents the spirit of post-revolution Mexico. So I I'd love to start off by asking you, how and when did you discover the work of Tina Madotti? Well, that happened a very long time ago. It was in 1983, actually, when I attended an exhibition at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And this exhibition was titled Edward Weston in Mexico, 1923 to 1926. So Weston was an early modernist photographer who really came into his own in terms of his work during these three years in Mexico. So it was a great show. Lots of his iconic images were there. But I found myself more attracted to the more snapshot-like photographs that he took of his circle of friends around Mexico City. And there in almost all the photographs was this vibrant, beautiful woman who looked to be leading a very adventurous life. And so I thought, yeah, I want to know more about her. That same year, the first Modotti book came out, but it was very sketchy. So lots of questions remained. I thought, well, maybe someday I'll write an article. And at one point, I did start doing research. And I thought it would be very interesting to find out about this fellow named Roubaix de la Brie Ritchie nicknamed Drobo, who had been Modotti's companion in San Francisco in the 1910s. So she had come from Italy. She was living with her family. She was quite young and she had connected with Robo. And I thought this is important because that was a transformative time for her. So this fellow was always presented as a French Canadian artist and writer. And that was pretty much it. So I started looking for him in Quebec, and I got nowhere. And then I realized that he had published a number of short stories that were set in Southern Oregon. And at one point, I got on the phone, and I started calling people with that last name, Richie, in Southern Oregon. And I mean, it could have been a huge waste of time, of course, but it wasn't. <laughs> so one person sent me to another, and eventually... I found myself talking to a woman in Seattle and she said, oh yes, I know who Robo was. And we talked a bit. And then she said, you know, his first cousin once removed is still alive and he has Robo's belongings. (laughs) So it didn't take me very long to get up to this cousin who lived on a farm. He was a grass seed farmer. And he and his wife were very nice. And that morning, they had had the hired man bring down from the attic 
these two old trunks. One had been very ornate. It was pretty dilapidated. And the other was kind of a, a big wooden box. And we opened them. And they were just packed with stuff. And I thought, how am I going to go through this? So I said, do you think I could take these to the motel with me and look at the things? And they said, oh, no, you wouldn't be comfortable at the motel. You should take them home with you. Oh, my God. I know. So my husband and I rented a van and we drove from Southern Oregon to our home in California. And these two trunks sat in my living room for the next two years. I started going through them. So what they were, were the belongings that Robo had had with him when he died in Mexico. He died unexpectedly. Tina went to join him. She arrived too late, but she was there collecting his things. And then she sent the trunks back to Los Angeles. And then over the years, when she would send things, letters or photographs to Robo's family, they put all these things in the trunk. And then eventually these trunks went up to the cousin and they've been sitting in that attic, really probably not looked at carefully since the early 1920s. Fortunately, they'd been been sealed. So, you know, they were in good condition. And so I was looking through these things and, you know, it's one thing to read about someone in a book, of course, but it's something entirely different to be sitting there looking at the envelope of a letter that Tina wrote in, let's say, 1922, opening it up, seeing her handwriting, finding photographs that she had taken over the years. And there were about 100 photographs in this trunk by Tina Modotti, some of them apparently one-of-a-kind prints. Oh, my goodness. I know. And so it was not just a matter of reading, but it was a tactile experience it was an olfactory experience. I mean, you kind of smell the, you know, that musty smell of the past. And it was just amazing. So at that point, I thought, yeah, I can write a book. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, got like the richest material in the world. But I mean, what drew you to her photographs? Well, as I said, I started by way of the life because there was not a lot of work by her available then. There were a few photographs reproduced in this first book, but not very many. And it took me a while to kind of come around to the work. And then as I started researching, I saw more and more of them. I think the first photograph that I focused on very intensely was her early work, Calla Lilies, which is this gorgeous platinum print of two calla lilies with very long stems. It is exquisitely lit. It is beautifully proportioned in terms of the relationship between the two flowers, the two stems, their relationship to the frame. I mean, it is an exquisite image that you could look at and just feel, I think, deeply satisfied. And what did unveiling all these items and this this suitcase of a life, essentially, I mean, what did it teach you about her place in history? Well, I still had to find that out because it was like this giant puzzle. I did get a lot of insights into her first impressions of Mexico because when she arrived in in 1921, she, of course, immediately wrote to the family of her dead companion and said, 
this is what I'm seeing. And then she went on to organize an exhibition during that trip at which she met a number of luminaries. So you begin to get a sense of her getting a feel for Mexico and perhaps even understanding that Mexico might be a place where a photographer could flourish. Yeah. So as exceptional as Tina Madotti's photographs are, her life was extraordinary and it was intertwined with her art because of her ardent political beliefs, but also the fact that she was at the forefront of so many pivotal historical and cultural events in the early 20th century. I cannot wait to get into it. But first, Tina Madotti was born in 1896, the third of six children in Italy. Tell us about her family and childhood. Well, her family was um, a very poor family. Her father was a mechanic. Her mother was a seamstress. When Tina was only 15, they had to leave Italy. They went to Austria because her parents had work in Austria. So she actually grew up in, in Austria. She spoke German until she was nine. And then they went back to Italy. And at that point, her father again had to leave because um, looking for work. And he found work in San Francisco eventually. So the family was split. Tina had a little bit of schooling, probably about four years of formal schooling, but then she had to drop out, take a factory job. And finally, her father sent to her. At that point, the rest of the family was still back in Italy. So it was a very difficult time, a very difficult family situation, lots of separations. And so in 1913, age 17, and I, am I right in thinking with $100 in her pocket, she traveled to New York and then went on to join her father and sister in the Italian community of North Beach in San Francisco. I mean, tell us about what this must have been like for her. 1913, I mean, this is the era where it must have been so romantic. It was obviously a huge transition. She arrives, she takes a factory job, but very quickly she cycles out of that because, you know, she had this very strong bent for doing some kind of creative work. She was designing clothes. She was doing hats. She was writing poetry. And she was uh, working as a semi-professional actress in the Italian language theater, which was then flourishing. So these companies would come in and they would hire locals to uh, complete the cast. And she was a, a star, particularly in dramatic roles. I can imagine. Yeah. I love how her art was totally intertwined with that. It's amazing. But I mean, I'm so fascinated by this life as an actress and everything, because then she moved to Los Angeles for five years, where she became a successful actress starring in silent films. I mean, tell us about life in LA for her. Well, she was in a few films. She actually starred in only one called The Tiger's Coat, which I have to say is a very mediocre film, the theme of which is um, Love Conquers All. And uh, she played the role of, of, quote, an exotic Mexican. So it was not really a brilliant career. I think it was that experience that led her to realize that she had to go in a different direction. This wasn't going to work out for her in Hollywood during these stereotypical roles. Yeah. I love it that she was like the femme fatale. <laughs> well, she, she was. And in that era, actors and actresses brought their own costumes. And she and Robo Ritchie, her companion who had moved with her to Los Angeles, they were doing batiks these beautiful batiks. And so she appears in this film wearing these amazing gowns that she has created using batik and also, of course, designed and sewn. But I mean, this was the 1920s in Hollywood. I mean, who was she hanging out with? 
She was hanging out with some of the film stars because she was designing clothes for some of them. But her closer circle of friends was a kind of bohemian circles, artists, writers, and so forth. I mean, this was Robo's world as well. Notably, Edward Weston. So they meet Weston in Los Angeles, and there's lots of parties and lots of excursions and lots of sitting around late nights talking and drinking and dancing. I mean, it just sounds so romantic. And I mean, she starts to pose for Weston. Am I right in thinking around 1921? There is the most sort of enchanting image by him called White Iris. And she's sort of out of focus. The White Iris is the focus at the beginning. And it's just so alluring. There's something so sensual about it. There's something so contemporary about it as well. I mean, she seems like a woman who is for now. Yes. So she did start to pose for Weston. And there are a number of photographs that he took of her that are so sensual and just lovely. I mean, she was she was also a great model. And the two of them very quickly became lovers. This was a secret love affair because she was, of course, still living with Robo and with Robo's family. So this all had to be done very clandestinely. Oh my gosh. Well, I guess she was an actress, so probably quite easy. She was. <laughs> so then what happened to Robo? Because then he left her for the for the job in Mexico City. I mean, tell us the story. Well, they had some friends who were Mexicans in exile because of the Mexican Revolution. And one of these friends was actually a politician, a rather high-ranking politician. So when the revolution ended and things were stabilized, he was called back to Mexico City and he invited Robo to come in and work for a time. And This sounded like an amazing opportunity. So Robo left first. Tina was supposed to follow him. She had some work in a film. So she said, well, I'll follow once that's done. In truth, there was still Weston who was uh, keeping her in, in, in Los Angeles. And then finally, after much delay, she did head to Mexico City. She was in the train on her way to Mexico City when she was handed a telegram. And this telegram was from Robo. It said, I have smallpox, do not come. She decided she was going to go despite his words. And so she arrived in Mexico City. He was in quarantine in the hospital. She arrived just a few hours before he died. So there she was by herself in Mexico City, Robo dead, Tina feeling very, very guilty and very much alone and heartbroken because, in fact, there was a true bond between them. I think she did love him despite the affair with Weston. At this point, she organized an exhibition because that had been Robo's project, so she wanted to carry it out and included Robo's work, but also Weston's and that of some other artists from California, and then went back to Los Angeles and had to regroup. And she also had to earn a living. I mean, she was not a wealthy woman. So how was she going to conduct the rest of her life? She decided that she would try photography. So Weston then taught her photography. Eventually, the two of them decided that they would go together to Mexico City and be there for a certain amount of time. They would set up a photography studio that would be their way of earning a living, but they would also have these new opportunities as photographers. Now, Weston, I should say, was married with four sons. So one of the sons 
goes with them as a Never kind of, a, of drama. <laughs> well, you know, kind of a hostage to uh, his legal situation. But the idea is that Weston would continue to teach modality photography in Mexico City, and she would run the household. She would run his studio because of her language skills. She was a great linguist. Spanish was not a problem. So she would make things run smoothly, and together they would photograph. Amazing. I mean, also, I should just add, my favourite Western photograph of Tina has got to be at his house in Glendale, California. And she's sitting on this kind of wicker chair surrounded by these wicker side tables. And I mean, she just looks, I mean, she's just such a star. And when you think of 1920s Hollywood stars, she is the epitome. I mean, I'll share it for the listeners in the show notes. And it's just, just so seductive. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, then her and Weston officially moved to Mexico City in 1923. I'd love for you to tell us about the social and political cultural context of Mexico City at this time, because 13 years earlier had been the revolution. I mean, what was happening at this point and who was there? Well, it was a very exciting time to be in Mexico City because, yes, the revolution had ended. There was a new government, a new constitution. Artists who had been in exile in Europe were coming home. So notably Diego Rivera, Siqueiros, there were others. And they were coming back, bringing with them new ideas about avant-garde ways of working, of cubism, futurism, and so forth. Meanwhile, a lot of excavations of Mesoamerican sites were happening in Mexico. So that was inspiring other artists. All this was coming together and foreigners were also arriving in, in Mexico. There was a minister of public education, Jose Vasconcelos, who was in power. He was doing a number of innovative things. He was publishing sort of cheap sort of paperback books. I mean, the education system needed rebooting. He was condoning or working with these open-air art schools so people could go and and learn art. And most famously and importantly, he was giving public walls to Mexican artists on which to paint murals. So these were murals intended to inspire and educate the Mexican people. Totally. And I just love this idea of all these artists. Just, I mean, it's, it's a bit like what was happening across the world in Paris. You know, this was the center of the avant-garde. And these people had such strong, ardent beliefs as well. And to think that, you know, a time of revolution, a time of total upheaval in every sense of the world, it must have been so exciting, so much energy, so much richness and everything. And I mean, so she was obviously working with Edward Weston in his studio. When did she sort of begin to hone her style? I mean, she must have been one of the first modernist photographers in Mexico City because photography itself is also such a new medium at this point. Yes. Well, at the beginning, she's very much a follower of Weston, I would say. She follows his his lead in terms of photography as photography, as opposed to photography, sort of soft focus painting. So very much concerned with everything a photograph can do that a painting cannot do. So these very beautifully articulated materials and lights and careful composition and so forth. Her early works in Mexico were flowers, architectural details, sometimes portraits. She liked working in that mode of still life. Still life was was really her thing. She used a medium format camera. She would take the time to set things up very carefully, think through what she wanted to do in in an image. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by this idea of still life because not only did she 
always talk about how she had this uniquely Mexican point of view, but also the fact that these still lifes could be a vehicle for conveying symbolic messages in which everyday objects sort of become metaphors for abstract ideas. I mean, what is the significance of the wilted flower? Well, her 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 work changed and became more deeply her own as she became a political activist. So I think that was the key change. In 1926, she was one day at the May Day Parade. So it was May 1st. She was on a friend's roof. She had her camera. She looks down and there she is overlooking a demonstration. And there are farm workers marching by with their sombreros. She takes that photograph in which we see all of these farm workers there is no horizon line. There is no hierarchy. Nobody in that photograph is more important than anyone else. It's that photograph, I think, that really makes her realize that photography could be something else, because that was not only a photograph of a demonstration on May 1st, but it was also a photograph that conveyed a concept, and that concept was the unity of farm workers. So she takes that idea going forward, and as she herself became more politically active, that becomes uh, an important tool for her. Totally. And just, I love this work from 1925 called Telephone Wires, Mexico. It's such a sort of simple image. She takes these everyday objects like telephone wires, which we see every day, you know, depending on where you live in the world. And in a way, there is this total essence of modernity in this picture as well. I mean, it's an abstraction in a way, these beautiful sort of strings, just almost kind of like a crepuscular cloud or something. I mean, you can see the clouds in the background. And I love that juxtaposition, but also this kind of whoosh. I mean, you can really like almost hear these photographs in the sense that there is this, this rush towards the future as well. And they're just so exciting. Yes, very much so. So Mexico was industrializing and there are a number of Modotti photographs that capture that aspect of what was happening, change and communication. You know, this was a country that had been so battered and she's, I think, showing new possibilities, new ways for people in, in, in one part of Mexico to communicate with another yes. telephone line, something yeah. brand new. Totally. So like, it's almost like the, the, the picture is this conduit. It's like this message almost. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But between 1924 and 1928, she made several hundred photographs of Diego Rivera's fresco. I mean, tell us about this. How did she start working with him? Part of her and Weston's circle in Mexico City included the, the Mexican muralists. So Rivera, very much present, other artists and writers. And Rivera, of course, was also a fellow communist. So Modotti would join the party in 1927. So they had a lot in common. He was painting the, the murals, of course. So these amazing murals can't travel by definition. So the rest of the world was interested in these murals, but how were they going to see them? Well, they were going to see them through Tina Modotti's photographs. So she took hundreds of photographs, details, of Rivera's murals. She was selling them for, I think, 50 cents a piece. <laughs> um, <Wow. laughs> yeah. And this was how the rest of the world, people who couldn't travel to Mexico, this is how they saw that work at the time. She also reproduced work for Jose Clemente Orozco, Siqueiros. So lots of work for various, various muralists. 
So like you say, in 1927, she solidified her alliance and joined the Communist Party in Mexico. And her photographs for the communist newspapers were among the earliest examples of critical photojournalism in Mexico. I mean, what sparked her interest in communism? I mean, what led her to, to join forces with this party? Well, at the time, it seemed like a very good move. She was a very empathetic person. She was a very compassionate person. She had always done social work of, of various kinds. You know, she could not pass a homeless person on the street without stopping to, to try to help. So in Mexico, in the mid-1920s, the Communist Party seemed like the best conduit for that type of, of work. And she specifically was active in something called the International Red Aid, which was a kind of communist Red Cross. So it was a way of, of helping people and particularly farm workers, working class people who had been promised all these things by the government, but the government wasn't following through. But I mean, also at this point, around 1926, she started to also capture photographs of the Mexican working class. And for her, any of her exhibitions, because she would stage lots, she insisted that the galleries would extend their hours. So it would not just to sort of serve the middle class office workers, but so that factory workers could come see her, her work too. And I think that's such an incredible thing to do just in terms of opening up this medium to everyone and also showing them what's happening as well and including everyone. And And there's the most incredible photograph of 1927 called Workers' Hands. And it's just this close-up of these hands on top of each other, clutching a spade. And you can tell just not only from the kind of heat of the sun that burns on their hands, but the sort of roughness. And it's almost like you can sense dust or sand on it. But I love the fact that also they are sort of tied to an individual as well. And just the kind of strength of them, it's just captivating. Yes. So what she had decided was that there's no such thing as a class-neutral photograph, that every photograph serves one social class or another. And typically, that's the, you know, the bourgeoisie. She didn't want to serve the bourgeoisie. So one thing she does is she stops doing the platinum prints, which are very expensive and rarefied. She does only gelatin silver prints. And she also begins working with, of, and for the Mexican people. So when I say with, she would find a farm worker or a child, a laborer in the city, and work with that person to set up an image. And you know, she was worked very much as a director might, finding the right lighting and so forth. And then they were, of course, also her subjects. And as you say, her subjects in a very beautifully materialistic way where you really feel their skin, you feel the warmth of the sun, you feel the pressure on the, the handle of a tool. And then for the Mexican people. So she wanted to make her work accessible by, for example, when she had an exhibition, extending the hours so that everybody could come and not just people who kept office hours. So all these things, I think, lead to her greatest photographs. And this is fantastic image of Julio Antonio Mella, his typewriter, and he was the founder of the Cuban Communist Party. Am I right to think she actually became lovers with Julio Antonio Mella as well? 
Yes. So he was this very handsome, charismatic, um, young. They must have been such a force together. (laughs) You could just imagine. I mean, it's such an incredible, it's like a film. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. So they were a beautiful couple and they, of course, had activism in their their life. And he was also a communist. Obviously, she was a communist. So it was a very intense relationship. And as you say, she photographed his his typewriter this was part of i mean if you you can look at her whole work from this period in terms of tools you know really yes. what she's photographing is tools she's photographing the worker's shovel she's photographing the fisherman's net she's photographing the bakery boy's basket she's photographing the activist Julio Antonio Meyer's typewriter and you know even when she's just photographing say hands and feet they come across as tools. These are what these people have to work with is their hands and their feet. And that's about it in some cases. Totally. And also the, the, the root of the tool as well. You know, the fact that the workers' hands are their tool. The typewriter is where the Communist Manifesto is born. I mean, there's this fantastic photograph of her and Frida Kahlo from 1928. I mean, tell us about how she became friends with Frida Kahlo and then their friendship. Well, she met Kahlo through um, Maya. And Kala was also an activist. You know, their friendship, not a whole lot is known about it, frankly. And it seems to have been more political than artistic. So we don't know what was said between them. We don't really have any details, except we do have a couple of really wonderful photographs of the two of them sort of draping their arms around, around each other. Definitely. And so, I mean, other photographs around this time, something like Woman with Flag and Woman from Tehuantepec. I mean, tell us about your thoughts about these works. I mean, how do they make you feel? Well, Woman with Flag is, of course, one of these beautiful images that brings together the aesthetic pleasure, the kind of empathy that is present in in Modotti's work, and also takes us back, you know, to to the social and political life of 1920s Mexico. So these three elements that are present in, I think, all of her best works. The photographs from Tehuantepec. So what happened was that Tina and Julio Antonio Mea, these two lovers coming home together one evening from a political meeting were walking through the streets and because he had challenged the dictator of Cuba i mean he was he was a wanted man as they were walking home a gunman appeared and shot him and uh, he died that night in the hospital so all of a sudden he's, he's gone and the love of tina's life he's been assassinated all kinds of things follow. For one thing, she is arrested and accused of being behind the assassination. So it's presented as a crime of passion. And there is this big smear campaign against her all over the Mexican papers. Weston's photographs, his nudes of her are, of course, dragged out and widely shown. And she is held under house arrest for a number of days, finally released, and then has to go on with her life. Meanwhile, you know, lots of demonstrations, not only in Mexico, but, but around the world. At that point, one thing that she does is she goes to Tehuantepec on the Isthmus of Mexico by herself, I think, to kind of take a deep breath. And she is photographing the residents there. So this is an area 
that is inhabited by Zapotec people. And the reputation they have is that, that it's a, a matriarchal society. So Tina's there photographing these, these very striking women who have been also um, much painted by Diego Rivera and others. So I think she's, you know, kind of working through what it is to be a woman in Mexico, where she needs to go from, from here on. But I do think what's incredible about them is this dignity. And she really gets under the skin of her subjects as well. You can really feel this kind of internal triumphance as well, even just the way that she's also sort of painting from below. She appears almost kind of statue-like in a way. And just the kind of this real sort of internality and stoicism as well. And I wonder when she was photographing these women. I mean, it's amazing because I think that painters can do it so well, but I think it's rare in photography to really capture the sort of deep internal feeling. And you can just imagine, I mean, she clearly felt so much as a person and to be also photographing these people, it's almost as though she's kind of putting herself in them, perhaps. Yes. Well, she photographed in some cases from uh, a slightly low angle. So kind of looking up at people. So there's this kind of heroicizing um, position. Yes. And we see that, for example, she did a, a beautiful portrait of a child, a farm worker, who's wearing an immense sombrero. He's probably, I don't know, maybe eight years old, wearing an immense sombrero. And she does it again with some of the women in Tehuantepec, where they're carrying these vessels on their on their heads, but she's looking up at them. And, you know, the way that works is the sombrero or the vessel, they become like like halos. So in yes. a way, she's conveying the goodness in a subtle way, in a way that involves all the factuality of photography. So nothing that isn't factual, but you get that impression, yeah. Totally. I mean, the silhouettes almost feel like sort of ancient Egyptian art or something. I mean, there is something so incredibly historic about her work as well. Yes, there's a great dignity to all of her subjects, yes. Was she recognised for her photography at this point? Because her first solo show was the first revolutionary photography in Mexico City in 1929? Yes, she was recognised in Mexico and had this well-attended exhibition. And she was beginning to be recognised in the rest of the world as well. Because you have to remember, this was a period when there were not a lot of modern photographers working in Mexico. Other people were not doing what she was doing. Weston had gone home and he was not as involved in, in Mexican society in the first place. She was mentoring Manuel Alvarez Bravo, who would come along and come into his own in the 30s. But nobody else was doing what Madotti was doing. You know, it's really her images have become emblematic of this period. It, true, they are very much constructed. They're not just candid shots. But I think they conveyed much of the spirit of what was what was happening. Totally, totally. But I mean, <laughs> she's already gone through so much drama, but it did not stop there. Because in 1930, she was disembarked in Rotterdam. I mean, tell us about sort of how she went from, you know, going outside of Mexico City to then sort of being banished from the country. Well, so in 1929, there was this big shakedown in the uh, world of international communism. So it was the split between the Stalinists and the Trotskyites. And that caused a lot of turmoil within the, the Communist Party. Diego Rivera gets expelled. Tina goes in the direction of the Stalinists. Rivera goes in the direction of the Trotskyites. 
And also the Mexican government at this point declares the Communist Party illegal. So people have to, um, they have to hide, they have to flee, they have to go underground. Tina is arrested because she was supposedly part of a plot to assassinate the Mexican president, of course, totally fabricated. But she's thrown in jail for two weeks, and then she's finally released, and she's given two days to put her affairs in order before she will be deported. And indeed, two days later, she is taken to a ship in Veracruz, and she is sent out of the country. Wow. So what happens here? She arrives in Rotterdam in 1930. The ship lands in Rotterdam, and she manages to make her way to Berlin, where she decides she's going to set up a portrait studio. She tries, but there are all kinds of difficulties. I mean, she is just not happy in Berlin. She takes a few photographs. She can't get the materials she needs or is used to working with. There's no sun, like in Mexico. She's by herself, essentially. But also it's the rise of Nazism as well. I mean, it's such a politically tense time. Yes. And that was also part of the reason why she ends up moving on to Moscow. Now, there's another relationship here that's been important in her life, starting in Mexico, which is her relationship with a man named Vittorio Vidale, who was a Stalinist operator close to Madolci's circle in Mexico. And he, when she is put on this ship in Veracruz and sent to Europe, he unexpectedly pops up on this ship. And then he will reappear in Berlin. And he is the one who is urging her to travel to Mexico. He was also Italian. He was a very charming person, but he was also a ruthless operative. So she then goes to Moscow at his urging, and she uh, starts working for International Red Aid, which is headquartered there, and decides that that's really what has to happen at this time of great political conflict in the, in the world. Oh, my goodness. And then, I mean, she goes to Paris and then Spain, but it's this outbreak of the Spanish Civil War? Yes. So she is working partly in Moscow, but she's also sent on these missions, which we don't know too much about throughout Europe, notably in Paris. And then when the Spanish Civil War breaks out in 1936, she's sent to Spain to work for International Red Aid. She becomes a nurse and a social worker, but also herself an an operative. So lots of things going on in Spain, even as the Republicans were fighting the fascists, the Republicans were fighting among themselves as well, the Stalinists versus the Trotskyites. And her companion, Vittorio Vidali, who was there in Spain as well, and he was an important commander, I mean, he was very much in the thick of things. And am I right in thinking she also took the pseudonym of Maria as well? I mean, she was really going undercover. Yeah, so she was known as Maria. She was not known as Tina Modotti. People did not have any inkling of her work as a photographer, her time in Mexico. She was Comrade Maria. Oh my goodness. I love that. I mean, again, like playing all these roles. I mean, every day must have been sort of exciting, but also incredibly tense and nerve wracking as well. Well, it was very dangerous. She showed tremendous courage she just did tremendous things in, in, in Mexico. And it was very, very hard work, obviously. She was you know, near the front lines. It was not easy. And then how did she get back to Mexico? And what happened here? 
Well, when the war was lost, those backing the Republic had to leave. And so she went into exile. Many Mexicans who had been in Spain fighting in the Civil War ended up you know, back in their country. And so she went back to Mexico City, still known as Maria, and still operating semi-clandestinely. So back in Mexico City, she does translation work. But, you know, at this point, she's kind of disillusioned, I think, with Stalinism. So this is the time when Stalin and Hitler signed a non-aggression pact. And she's appalled by this because, after all, her whole purpose for becoming an activist has been to fight fascism. And here is Stalin signing a, an agreement with the fascists. So at this point, I think she's, she's quite unhappy. She had given up photography, I should say, in Moscow because she wanted to devote herself to this world struggle. She comes back to Mexico and she's tempted to pick up the camera again. Manuel Alvarez Bravo urges her to take some photographs. He wants to give her a camera. And she thinks about it, and then she says, no, I, I can't do that anymore. I could never do what I did before. And she doesn't. And in fact, she's very tired. She has congestive heart failure at this point. Um, she's still impoverished. She's still living with Vidale, although he's having an affair with another woman. Her life was not happy at the end. Wow. And then when she was going home from a dinner party in 1942 on the 6th of January, what happened? Yes. So she'd been at a party. It was at the home of a, of a former director of the Bauhaus. She'd been at this party. People had lingered. She'd been among those who lingered late. And finally, after midnight, she gets in a taxi by herself on her way home. And by the time the cab driver pulls up in front of her apartment, she was dead in the back seat. So it's thought that she died of heart failure. But there's always been another theory, which is that her Stalinist comrades, notably Vidali, actually had her killed because, quote, she knew too much. I do not think that was the case. But it's typical of the kind of intrigue that, that swirled around her during her entire life. And, you know, she was very young. She was only 45 years old. I mean, you've just got to think this woman was at, she was at every single political and cultural event of the early 20th century. I mean, the fact that she knew too much, I mean, she must have seen everything. I can't imagine being at the forefront of that. I mean, it's just incredible on the way she reinvented herself so many times from going to Italy, to San Francisco, to Hollywood, to Mexico, to Moscow, to Berlin. You know, it's just remarkable. I'm also just a woman as well in her 30s at this time when it was probably quite unusual for women to travel around the world by themselves. I mean, how does that make you feel? Well, Yes, she did extraordinary things, but you know, she was also very buffeted by these forces out of her control. I mean, she lived in eight different countries. She spoke five languages. As you say, she had to constantly reinvent herself. And you look at photographs of her over the years, and it almost seems like a series of different people in terms of the way she's dressed, the way she looks, the right way she's responding to the camera. I think, in fact, she had a wonderful life. I think she had a very difficult life all at the same time. And she was just 
incredible for her ability to know what her values were at any time and to act on them. I think very, very courageously and without taking into account conventional attitudes or conventional ways of of doing things. She knew what she had to do and she did it. And so you first heard about her in 1983, 40 years after she died. I mean, what is her legacy and how did her career sort of come to the fore? Well, for many years, nobody wanted to know much about her at all because, of course, she was a Stalinist. And she died, the World War II ended, and then came the Cold War. And here was this Stalinist who wanted to know about the work of a Stalinist. And in fact, in the early 1950s, someone came one day to a reception desk of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City and had a stack of six Modotti photographs and just kind of put them there, like, you know, abandoning a baby on a doorstep. And The museum did not know what to do with them. They were in limbo. They sat there for six years before they were taken into the permanent collection because she was just not of of, of any interest. So it really took until the 80s that people began to rediscover her, notably women in a number of countries wrote about her. And a very interesting thing that happened as she was becoming known People in these various countries who were researching her each contributed a different body of expertise. So we called ourselves the Tinistas. There was a woman from East Germany, for example, who did tremendous work in the East German archives and the Soviet archives. There was Elena Poniatowska from Mexico who had access to many of uh, Tina's companions and friends and, and did these extraordinary interviews that she was that she was willing to share. There was another man who researched and worked with the, her Italian connections. So together we were able to make a kind of a whole portrait of her life and work. I love that just considering she lived so many lives and actually she needed so many different she people. She did. You know, she it's, did. It's not a job of one person because she was so multifaceted. Yes. <laughs> Patricia Alvers, this has been the most incredible insight into Tina Madotti. Thank you so much. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could ask Tina or say something to her, what would it be? <sighs> truly I do not know (laughs) I well I would I would like to ask her if she regrets having given up photography you know I think one thing I learned from working with her was that the danger of true belief in an ideology she was such an open person to different aspects of being alive for so many years and then After she joined the party at one point, she did become narrow-minded and dogmatic. And that was something I think she learned to regret. So I would love to say, what would you do differently if you could? Patricia Albers, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. It's been a pleasure. 
thank you all so much for listening to this incredible insight into the life and work of Tina Madotti. I'm absolutely blown away. Thank you so much to my wonderful sound editor, Nada Smanelic, and research assistant, Viva Ruji. Thank you again to my amazing sponsor, Alighieri, and follow their journey on at Alighieri underscore jewellery to hear all about their latest collections and discover their magical talismans at www.alighieri.com. And don't forget to use the code TGWA at checkout for a 10% discount. And of course, thank you all so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 